Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips, and today we have another in our series of terrific guest stars. With us today is Danny Fingeroth, who is, for those of you who don't know, a longtime comics editor for Marvel Comics, a writer of comics. He wrote long runs of comics like Dazzler, Darkhawk, and a bunch of other titles. Since leaving Marvel, he has taught comics and lectured on comics, edited a great magazine from Two Morrows called Right Now, which I loved. Um, and he's written a bunch of books, including Superman on the Couch and the terrific A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee, which I recommend to everybody. It is a great biography. It does not spare any of the, you know, more difficult moments in Stanley's life, but it is an upbeat and positive book all the same. So um, I think it really balances things well as somebody who's read a few of these Stanley biographies that are out there. Anyway, welcome, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I love the idea of this show and, and thanks for what you said about the, uh, about the Stan biography, you know, cause I really, you know, I worked hard to try to make it, as you said, upbeat but but not ignoring you know mm -hmm. some of the not so wonderful things stan did yeah you know, what i bring to my book superman on the couch disguises clark ken a marvelous life is to my books about comics uh, certainly is the point of view of somebody who knows how the sausages are made who's worked in the comic business for sure and bring something to it that you know, even the best, most accomplished biographer, professional biographers or journalists uh, or historians couldn't because they haven't uh, worked in the comic business. So that, right, uh, right. And you were and I'm sure you worked closely with Stanley uh, at times in your career. There, there were there were times that I did. Oddly enough, I think I worked more closely with him after I left Marvel than, oh, okay. than when I was at Marvel. If simply because at uh, the other companies I went to, I was the guy who knew Stan. <laughs> you know, right? Oh, I gotcha. Yes. So for sure. again, I think that I was, you know, I would, I was a colleague. I like to think that uh, he considered me a friend of some kind, but I was certainly never in his inner circle. You know, mm, I wasn't right. somebody Stan socialized with. And there were times I worked with him as his editor, as his interviewer at, at, uh, at the, the wizard conventions for a number of mm -hmm. years, but for better or worse, I, I was, it was always as a colleague. I, I you know, I mean, I have yeah. some great stories about personal moments with Stan, but those were, they're great stories because they're unusual in, in my life. Uh, again, I think that helped with the biography because I wasn't somebody so close and so tied up with him that I, felt that I had to right. censor myself. Uh, you know, it was like I have the insight into him to some degree and to his life uh, personally and professionally, but, you know, I, you know, but I, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in his inner circle. It's, uh, yeah. So okay. it gives me a certain perspective. Fair enough. Well, today we're going to talk about a comic book edited by Stan Lee. This one went on sale May 14th, 1954, and it's called World's Greatest Songs Illustrated. And to start with, it is a real obscure comic, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into it. But Danny, what made you pick this comic? You know, it was such a strange thing in the context of of Marvel Comics or Atlas or Timely as, a, you know, had, had different names. Sometimes it had mm -hmm. no name, but this, right in 1954, it was something. You know, I started working at Marvel in the late 70s, and you know, you'd go through drawers of file cabinets looking for something, and you, and sometimes you'd come across just this oddball stuff from 20 or more years earlier. Mm. 
And of course, when you're in your 20s, something that's 20 years old seems old. Now, <laughs> now somebody's <laughs> Maybe 20, not so much. Yeah, now somebody's 20 years old. It's like, oh, you mean the latest issue? But this was, <laughs> and it, I didn't even find the comic. I remember, and this is, I think there was like a uh, a proof, uh, a, a photostat of the, oh, okay. a, a black and white photostat of the cover. I think I literally just opened a drawer. I was looking for somebody, something else. And here was this weird thing. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and, and so it's always in the back of my mind, like what a strange thing. I mean, I'm looking at the cover uh, right. right now on my, on my screen. It, it is an odd thing. I mean, okay. So over the title world's greatest songs illustrated, it says all the words and music. And it has the Atlas logos because it was the mid fifties, but you know, the cover basically is a record with a portrait of Eddie Fisher in the middle. It says Eddie Fisher real big in the record, right? Like in the record shape. And then there's a big caption that says all the lyrics of young at heart as popularized by Frank Sinatra. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole concept of this book. Now, I think at the time, the, probably late 40s and 50s when the hit parade was the way people learned about music I, my understanding at least is that they were under there were magazines on the newsstands about obviously about music and about you know singers and things like that but that they would publish those lyrics too right i mean that's i, I don't know if you know, you know that, there I mean, were lots of you know the context i mean that's a very good point that that makes sense you know that that is um very interesting. I, I was looking at it more in the context of magazine uh, management, Martin Goodman's company. You know, sure. Goodman was the publisher of, you know, at Timely Atlas Marvel Comics starting uh, in the 30s. And he was also, you know, the comics grew out of his pulp publishing business. And and then he started publishing various kinds of schlocky magazines. You know, once in a while he would try to do something high class that imitated Esquire. And I mean, even mm-hmm. the even the name Timely, you know, is I think the idea was to make people think of uh, Time Life and Time Magazine. Uh-huh. You know, that that uh, without being sued by them, but sort of getting that that uh, that sense into the name of the company. Oh, interesting. You know, so a lot of lurid true romance true detective you know with a very loose interpretation of the word true you know? <laughs> yeah yeah right and and uh, so i uh, it's funny rather than looking like you did which you know like I, i'm kind of hitting myself in the head going i should have done more context i was looking at the context ah. good so goodman put out a lot of show business magazines right and you know, I think through publicists and and public relations firms and movie and 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 record companies, because again, looking through old files when I first started working at Marvel in the late seventies, you'd you'd see all these movie stills. I think I think it's probably why and how Stan started writing those funny caption magazines. Yeah, because right. the office was just floating in publicity stills and images and press releases. So Goodman put out a ton of magazines sort of in this vein, but they were, they had article, you know, pro you know, text articles and photos. Interestingly, I, 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 you know, did a Google search, several Google searches. I yep. could not find any of Goodman's celebrity magazines that had Eddie Fisher on the cover. Huh. And, and this is one of those weird oddball things you know, Stan was uh, once asked, I, I honestly don't remember if it was by me or somebody else, but do you remember anything about this world's greatest songs illustrated? He claimed to have <laughs> claimed to have no memory of it, you know, which... Sure. Or even that it even... I mean, he really vaguely only remembered that it existed. It was a one-shot. Yeah. And, you know, judged by uh, what's inside, it's... I don't think it was planned as a one-shot. I mean... You know, there's, there's it doesn't particularly feel like it, but yeah, there's not really much in the way of story content anyway, so it's a little hard to say. Well, there there's several notes from Stan requesting uh-huh. fan mail. That's true. Requesting fan right. fan mail and and saying, you know, oh, and there's even a contest. There's a ah. there there's a contest where um, oh yeah, can you write the lyrics? Yeah, can you write the lyrics? So I'm guessing it 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 was maybe. 
inspired by all this show business stuff that that the mm -hmm. um, other Goodman magazines had around. Right. So yeah, you're right. The cover, it, you know, Eddie Fisher. It, so you ask why I'm interested. It falls in a lot. Hey, it's just weird. Yeah, it really is. It's a real '50s artifact. Eddie mm -hmm. Fisher. You know, it's almost like. Um, the, I'm, I'm looking at the cover and I realize most listeners are not unless they've gone to, to your Facebook or, or, or other social media. But it's got this big picture of Eddie Fisher drawn either by Joe Manili and or John yeah. Severn. Yeah. You know, although I've seen it credited, I've seen it credited somewhere else to John Forte, which I find a little hard to believe. You know, it, 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 it's, it's hard because it's a, it's a just a headshot, you know, copied from a photo. Yeah. So, you know, could be any of those people to, you know, you know, or it could have been penciled by Manili and inked by Severin or vice versa. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's called world's greatest songs illustrated all the words and music, but then it's got a big, you know, a, a, a big blurb above Eddie Fisher's head that says all the lyrics of young at heart is popularized by Frank Sinatra. Right. Well, here's this weird period. It came out, you said, it's, it's cover dated September of 54. It comes yeah. out in May, so it probably was written and drawn, say, in early early 54, late 53. Mm -hmm. That's the period where Eddie Fisher had eclipsed Sinatra. Sinatra was in that down period of his career. Yeah, right. This is around mm -hmm. the time he made the comeback Right around uh -huh. the time he was in From Here to Eternity, and and he was back on on, on the charts. So the, and then he, I'm sorry, he. I was just gonna say, and then he formed uh, Reprise Records, right? Well, that was and Reprise is maybe ten years later. Oh, was it really? Okay, yeah, yeah. But he started doing those concept albums and things in the late fifties, right? Right, right. That that was part of the comeback. You know, he had because Eddie Eddie Fisher was not, had uh, among his nicknames was the new Sinatra and mm. the Jewish Sinatra. Ah. Eddie Fisher, it's you know, I guess that's that's another appeal to me as people who know my work know, you know, I wrote a book disguised as Clark Kent, uh Drew's comic and creation of the superhero. A lot of my interest in Stan is where he fits in kind of Jewish American culture. Mm-hmm. So Eddie Eddie Fisher was the biggest star in the country for about four years, and and um, and yet and yet they the lyrics. Now I'm figuring this book must have had a budget because if you uh, you go through the book and and it it is popular songs. So there's Young at Heart. Now Young at Heart's probably the one they paid money for. And this is the first story, sto quote unquote story, when you open the book. By the way, right. I just want to make sure we're clear. It's the first story, and it has a copyright on it, Sunbeam Music Corp, used by permission. Right. So, yeah. Uh, words of Young at Heart. Uh, so this must be, I'm guessing, this and whatever permission they had to get from Eddie Fisher's people must have been the main part of the budget for the mm -hmm. book. This is a story drawn by Vince Coletta, and it's yeah. classic, beautiful Vince romance kind of work. It's nice. I've, I'm, I haven't seen that much of his penciling generally, a little of the romance stuff, but not a lot. But, you know, it's really pretty nice. This is also around the period where he and Stan uh, were pitching a, a couple of syndicated strips uh, mm. to, to syndicates, uh, romance-oriented. So that's a two-pager, and it doesn't even look to me like they use all the lyrics for Young at Heart. So, so, no, it's you know, very brief. Uh, just to explain... Almost all these stories that are basically illustrated lyrics of popular songs, and some are like folk songs and things that have been around for much longer, but they are basically captions with a piece of artwork underneath. Right. There's no, there's like no word balloons in this entire comic. It is crazy. And there's no, um, most of them have a, 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 it's interesting, most of them have an artist credit. You know, it's a yep. little hard. The copy that uh, we both looked at is a little damaged on the first few pages. So I can't read the indicia and see who, you know, technically who the copyrights belong to. You know, there's no there's no writer credit. 
um, in the sense, there's a writer credit for the lyrics, but there's no writer credit for who determined what the images the artist would draw would be. For all Which I, is a really interesting question, yeah. actually, because, you know, conceivably, a writer could have broken down these lyrics and said, you know, panel one, it's a knight on a horse, because the lyric is fairy tales can come true. Right. So the question is, did a writer do it? I mean, a writer obviously did it, but was the artist the writer? Did Stan just say to uh, the Vinny, yeah. hear, hear the lyrics, uh, have fun with it, and you know, yeah, uh, you know. two pages. You got two pages, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you got two pages, and because um, some of these stories in here, and, and and it's by like a real murderer's row of of, uh, of Marvel artists: uh, Vince Coletta, yes. Russ Heath, Ken Ball, yeah. Joe Manili, yeah. John Forte, Dan DiCarlo. Yeah, uh, you know, it's 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 pretty. Uh, Dave Berg. Al Harvey. Yeah. So these were, you know, these, these, these are all the regulars. These are the regulars. These were literally the Marvel bullpen of the day when Marvel, yeah, I, th- they were I think putting out tons of books. Well, now. and I think I that mean, was is... that was when the bullpen was not imaginary. You know, um, when there were yeah. actually people. You know, it's it's ambiguous. It's, it's certainly in the '40s that would have been true. This is that transitional period where Goodman had technically disbanded the bullpen, but I think there were still people in the office, even if they were technically freelancers. Who were coming in and drawing? Right. Jack Abel was there. You couldn't get rid of him. Right. Well, that was that was that was years <laughs> later. That was no. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah. he was such a fixture, you know. Well, these these guys, you know, I think they just like to treat it as a job. So it's, yes. you know, but they they went through a lot of different phases, right? And then, of course, we come to the the um, the cover story, yeah. the Eddie Fisher story, drawn by drawn by Russ Heath. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Yeah. And it's the funniest thing. I mean, it's a, what, four-page story? Four-page story. And every single panel with Eddie Fisher, he's got his mouth open like he's (laughs) belting out a song. So it looks like, you know, after a while, it starts to look like, is he yawning? Is he what? (laughs) Certainly in the the first page, I wouldn't, you know, it's got a splash panel. It's got a large first panel and then uh, two smaller panels. But I think he was intentionally drawn, and maybe that was why he became popular in the first place, to look a little mm. like the young Sinatra. I mean, he looks like Eddie. Now, Eddie Fisher, as I say, in between like the, from the late 40s to the mid-50s was the almost, it, it, it's kind of the way people have forgotten that Martin and Lewis were the most popular movie comedy team of that era. Eddie Fisher was the most popular singer of that era. Yeah, he had you know multiple top ten and top forty hits over a period of about five years, right? Um, and uh, I guess maybe oh my papa might be the one. <laughs> yeah, that, I was just, just going to mention. That, Although it's funny, I mean, I didn't associate that song with him till I was listening on uh, Spotify right. to some Eddie Fisher songs, and I realized like, oh, that was his song. Okay, but was that that song had to have been around longer? And I could swear I've heard it in cartoons or whatever as oh mine papa you know more like a yiddish uh, yeah no i think kind of approach no, I, I, I have not researched that specific song but i think no. it was you know maybe it was based on a folk song or, or or a yiddish song he he grew up singing in the choir in his synagogue mm. um he grew up in philadelphia and of course he's you know these days he's most famous as being uh, carrie fisher's father Right, but he was involved in one of the to jump ahead in time a little way past the time frame of the most in, the most juicy things in Eddie Fisher's life happened after this, <laughs> you know. And maybe if it happened, they wouldn't have done the comic about him. Here he was still the clean cut kid. Ten years later, he was the subject of one of I think of the second Al Jaffe Mad Folding. Oh my God! Yeah, where because he was in, he was in the middle of one of his many scandals. This was the he had been involved with and married Debbie Reynolds, mm-hmm. Carrie Fisher's mother, but I don't think he was the world's most faithful husband, you know, since he seemed to, especially based on his uh, memoir, he seems to have slept with every <laughs> starlet, non-starlet, waitress, you know, cab driver, you know, pretty much every, <laughs> every, every woman in Hollywood seemed to if have willing, available. seemed to have, yeah, and they seem to have been uh, in, interested in him as a big star, but he certainly sure. he certainly made the most of, <laughs> of being a star. But he was married to Debbie Reynolds, 
who was good friends with Elizabeth Taylor, who was married to Mike Todd, uh, who died in a plane crash, who then married uh-huh. Eddie Fisher, and Fisher then married Connie Stevens, te- then two women who were less <laughs> famous, Terry Richard and Betty Lynn. And his kids include, you know, Carrie Fisher and Joelle Fisher. And his granddaughter is actually an actress named Billy Lord, who um, I'm oh, not familiar right. with, but has been in, in, in the most recent Star Wars movies. So, so, Amazing. so it's a kind of a dynasty, but this, yeah. so this, but this, this is 1954. So he's 25 years old. So he's a poor kid from Philadelphia, sings in shul. Mm-hmm. And then he is, he gets some jobs with big bands but they don't last. They don't, well, they don't last because it's supposed. Look, I mean, supposedly it, it's just like yeah, no, uh, like a filling in kind of thing. Right, because he's a kid, and I think I think yeah. I think literally, yeah. I think he literally could not sing in New York nightclub. But then he gets involved. Oh, he's too young. Yeah. Then he gets involved with the Copacabana. Monty mm-hmm. Prozer, who was the legendary owner of the Copacabana, who I have a mm. weird connection with, you know. Oh, cool. You know, which is not. Uh, which is sort of a 9-11 story, which I, I can... Uh, anyway, I work, I work with uh, Monty Prose's son on a project for Showtime ah. that was tied in with the TV show Jeremiah. Jim Prozer, who I'd never met, and I were put together in a room in a hotel in, in New York to brainstorm a online prequel to Jeremiah, the show that starred uh, Luke Perry and Malcolm Jamal Warner. It was a pretty show. Uh, J.M. Straczynski uh, was one of the creators of the show, or maybe the creator. And it was Uh. was really an excellent overlooked show. Mm -hmm. It was a dystopic future world uh, after the great disaster, which oddly enough, I believe was a a pandemic of some kind, Uh had killed everybody who had reached puberty or above and this was like 10 years later so the world was populated by young people who looked good with their clothes off (laughs) and um but this website they wanted a storyline with all sorts of bells and whistles about the disasters and riots and social upheaval and mm-hmm. plagues and nuclear disasters and everything else leading up to this dystopia that the show was set in. We started working on the assignment uh, somewhere around Labor Day of 2001. And so about a week later came 9-11 and the terrorist attacks on the towers and on the Pentagon right. and so on. And suddenly people didn't really want to show about the disasters and the upheaval and the uh, <laughs> wars and the yeah, social yeah. unrest. So to their credit, Showtime did pay us what they promised us, which, mm-hmm. which was, uh, I thought, a nice honorable thing. But anyway, that was a project I did with Monty Prozer's son, Jim. So my, so Crazy. here's, so the, so the Copacabana, you can look it up. It was a famous New York nightclub. Yeah. I, Definitely went to like a few parties there and things. Well, that was that was the revival of the Cobra. Yes, you know that somebody took the name. I don't know if it was the same space, but uh, this is again from the forties, fifties heyday, and uh, you know there was a certain amount of alleged mob involvement and so on and so forth. I'm shocked. Yes, I know. Who would think such a thing? Uh, and <laughs> so, and somehow that led Eddie Fisher getting a gig at the famous Grossinger's uh, Catskills Hotel. Right. Which is sort of another interesting connection for me. My father was actually the cantor at the Neville for many years. Oh, really? Yeah, during the high holidays and Passover. And the Neville was the one, one of, with that wasn't the one with the Jerry Lewis uh Browns was the Jerry Lewis one. But the, okay. the Neville was sort of Grossingers and the Concord were the were the tip tippy top ones with the yes. with 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 the biggest headliners. So so of course so the Eddie Fisher myth is that Eddie Cantor, who was a big star of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, discovered him there. Um, a comedian. A comedian and singer and sort of in the Jolson tradition for, yep. you know, you know, supposedly he discovered him randomly. Again, my research led me to believe that it was much more 
contrived and that that you know that there were deals made and age you know which as you would expect but the legend is that eddie yeah. Cantor just happened to hear him and, uh, and that's what they, that's what they portray it in the story right right you know right. it's like he, he eddie fisher is singing on stage and eddie Cantor's backstage like listening intently right. and going and walking out on stage just sort of at random and saying this kid's gonna join me on my tour <laughs> like i am <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah and, and and he'd already uh, fisher had already um i think won a lot of amateur contests he was he was i think well known locally and and it's sung with the copacabana you know and yeah. right but but being quote-unquote discovered by uh, by eddie Cantor was, was a big thing mm-hmm. and so then he's it's things of the paramount where of course where where you know 10 year 10 or 15 years earlier sinatra had had made a big splash, and then he was drafted, right? And actually went to Korea. I don't think he saw combat, but he, you know, I think that was very good for his image. You know, kind of like when, El- sure. when Elvis was drafted yep. a few years later. So the story ends. He's just gotten out of the army, and and he's picked up his his uh, his career. Oddly enough, he he had a show that was called it was called the the Coke. It had the word Coke in it. It was very funny. Um, uh-huh. Since I think he later developed a Coke habit. It was called like, <laughs> you know. It, well, Coke does add life. Yeah, well, you know, it was cool. But he was, he did a lot of TV. So this came out right in the middle, probably at the, uh, if not at the very peak, at one of the peaks of his stardom. Because he kind of, sure. he kind of crashed and burned by 1960. By the early 60s, he was, he was done. Yeah, I think he was. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but like after he split up with Debbie Reynolds, didn't didn't his public image kind of take a nosedive? Yeah, and it was yeah the whole thing, and you know, look, right, exactly, and that was the era when when studios and and record companies were mortified by that kind of thing. They did, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the reasons, you know, he had not. I think he had not. Yes, yeah, it's 54. He didn't marry Debbie Reynolds till 55, so they were sort of America's sweethearts. Yes, and they were this adorable couple, and uh, you know she had been in the singing in the rain, and uh, yeah. you know so they you know they you know they were cute and wholesome, and then I guess all these uh, later on you know but look but celebrities Sinatra and lots of others weathered divorces, but I think you know it coincided right. you know with him having just the ra- also I think rock and roll really did in a lot of these guys. You know, if you were Yes. You know, if you were a crooner in 1954, 5, 6 and suddenly Elvis and Bill Haley and uh Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard come along, you know, then then suddenly even though you might be the same age as those people, you you're kind of uh looked at as antiquated. Yeah. But certainly yeah. Goodman must have paid you know, there must have been some quid pro quo. Either Goodman actually dug into his pocket and paid for the rights, or maybe, or maybe Eddie Fisher's people. You know, I, I somehow feel it had to be tied in with all those celebrity uh, magazines Goodman was doing. It had to be mm-hmm. part of some larger deal. You know, it's true. Although I kind of wonder if 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 Goodman was already publishing these celebrity magazines, was he thinking? I wonder if the comic book di- division could get some mileage out of that same kind of material. It could be, it could be because, you know, look, I think Stan, of course, always wanted to expand his own yeah. and the company's reach, but you would think if Stan had any passion for it, it would have gone maybe two or three issues. Cause I mean, they obviously did not have any, any sales figures on this when they decided to months. cancel it, you know? Yeah. But right. it, those took a long time to get. Yes. You know, so it's, it's, it's so, so there's okay. So, so there's young at heart. There's the, there's the Eddie yeah. Cantor story, and there's the lyrics to Young at Heart. That's all right. the money for the book. I mean, that's got to be <laughs> yeah, pretty much. because everything else is right is terrific artists, but they're people who are working comics artists, you know. So they, I imagine, just got. Well, it's interesting. I, they probably got paid rate, except in a couple of the stories, yeah. like in Careless Love, it says by special permission of the illustrator. Yeah, that's a weird one. I mean, and there's there's a couple of those that say that. Right. But, that, uh, I mean, that, the careless love is supposed to be Ken Bald. Right. And it's delightful. I mean, I'm not um, super familiar with his work, but it's it's really lovely. Well, he's a terrific artist. He only died. Yeah. I mean, he only died recently. He's close to a hundred. 
And he right. and and in real life, he and Stan were very close friends. Yeah, you know? right. But so you'd have to think that must mean that maybe part of the deal of this was we can't pay you much, but you can you own the the rights to the illustrations. It must maybe. it must because they don't all say that, but some of them do. Yeah, I, I want to mention. There's also these two features here called World's Greatest Songs that are really like folk songs or traditional songs more. And they only have like three or four spot illustrations on a page by right. Joe Manile. Right. And then they just have like the complete lyrics to Home on the Range or Red River Valley. Or for some reason it says here Cape Town Races, which I thought was odd. Because oh, that's of course Camp Town Races. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a Stephen Foster song from the late 19th century. Well, so, well you know, that's you know. a fu- actually what they do not have the in- interesting because I think what's a combination of mm-hmm. the music publishing business is very protective. Yes. So I think the laws look, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the lyrics, a lot of the songs in this comic are public domain, right? Star Spangled Banner. Yes. Yep. I, I think a lot of these are either either public domain or they've quoted enough where the uh, the Atlas lawyers must have figured it it's fair usage. Because there's a song called Hallelujah, I'm a Bum, which was, um, I think, a Jolson song. And they only right. use four lines of it, whereas, huh. uh, yeah, a lot of these songs, they, they again, this, some of them are public domain. Turkey in the Straw, I imagine, is on top of Old Smokey. Sure. Uh, I think it's a combination of fair usage and public and public domain because because yeah, yeah. it just seemed like all the money must have gone to those first two features. Man on the Flying Trapeze, right? Yeah, it's and this is this is by uh, by Dan DiCarlo. And this, yeah, that, I wanted to talk about that yeah. one actually because the art is so interesting. Right. It's well, it, uh. it, it it's got almost. It, it looks like what Dan would later do for Millie the Model or for even for Archie sure. comics. Yeah, it's it's. Well, I, I thought it really had a Will Elder Mad Magazine feel. Oh, that's to it, true. Too. That's a good point. Well, well, you know, because very... there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in the panels. The male characters, in particular, but it, but some of the others too, are very cartoony and silly. Like in the first panel, the lyric is "Once I was happy, but now I'm forlorn." <laughs> like an old sweater, all tattered and torn, left in this old sad world to weep and to mourn. Betrayed by a maid in her teens. And the picture is like a skinny, cartoony guy sitting on a sidewalk holding an umbrella and crying, and the tears are like flooding the street. And there's a fish with an umbrella floating in, yeah, in the water. Yeah, right. right? That, that's, a Will, <laughs> that's a Will Elder touch, if ever. It, you know, I think this is around the time that uh, that Stan uh, and Timely were, were doing knockoffs of Mad. They were doing oh, sure. crazy and several other. Mag- so you're right. This, which is smart, right? Because yeah, this could have done double duty if something if this magazine well look maybe it even came out of inventory Wait. from crazy or something. That's a really good point because Mad in you know in the early days definitely had some stories that were basically adaptations, uh, comics adaptations of poems, right? You know, like funny poems and or the face on, overly the face. serious poems with like you know art that contrasted. Yeah, that's very so. interesting. So that's part of this context too. So it's it's all these kind of Venn diagrams of stuff that 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 the Timely was doing and that other companies were doing, and and as you said, I guess there were other, or maybe even Goodman probably know was putting out other magazines that had lyrics in them. But this is certainly right. the only one that I know of that that used a a, a cartoon approach as opposed to uh, I guess right. illustrations. I thought the one right after that was really interesting too. After the ball, right. illustrated by Vince Coletta again, or Vincent, Vincent, as it says here. But the lyrics are very sparse. It's like you know, most of these have a panel with like four lines of right. lyrics above, and this is one line of lyrics above each panel. So it's only a few lines altogether that tell this whole story. Well, that don't really tell a story, but Vince comes up with a story or the writer, whoever yeah. that might be, comes up with a story of, you know, there's a dance and it ends. And then this, you know, one girl is watching another one kiss somebody. 
you know, it breaks all. I mean, right? There's no, there's no real story except that, you know, you have to kind of write your own story in your head. After the ball was a story from like a, a song from the 19th century. It's a very old song. Is that right? Yeah, okay. yeah. I don't know that one. Um, um, I mean, I, I vaguely know it. I didn't know that about it. I should say. Yeah, I, I think this probably would have been a, a public domain kind of situation. Sure. No, Vince does a beautiful job it's lovely this. it's really you know, nice it's it's almost more of a i don't know if you call it a slice of life or because i mean the lyrics are after the ball is over after the break of day after the dancers leaving after you've gone away many a heart is sighing if you could know them all any hope is dying after the ball and it's that's the whole thing and yeah. it's kind of these two people you know man and a woman in tuxedos very modern looking you know mm-hmm. in uh, apparently in and, and they've been dancing all night because the sun is coming up uh-huh. and people are going up, breaking off into couples. Um, and we kind of have to write. Actually, if you, it's not the same woman in, in, who's, who's heartbroken. No, it's not. It's, two, it's like, it, it's two different women looking on at, at this couple who seem happy. Yeah, it's sort of like vignettes yeah, of yeah. different people and their experiences at a dance. And the opening panel with the title in it after the ball also is a sort of abstract um, thing with like champagne glasses right. and balloons and curtain, uh, you know, like drapes pulled back. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I have to tell you, it's funny because in my, my other podcast, Defenders Dialogue with Cara and Adam, right. we've been talking a lot about. Mr. Coletta's inking work in the seventies over like Sal Buscema and defenders and yeah, how not great it was. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, to see this, it's like, you know, it, really, you know, interesting to see these guys at the beginning of the careers where they're more ambitious about what they're trying to do. And obviously as decades go by, it's like, how fast can I get this done? Because I got to get on to the next job and I got to make the money. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, look, Vince is a complicated story. I mean, I, you know, I think, yeah, I think he, yeah. you know, I think like a lot of people, he kind of figured out how much he was getting paid. And, when, you know, and he had the unfortunate situation is he got known as a guy who could do stuff right. overnight. So he always got stuff to do overnight. Um, when uh-huh. he, you know, but he, when he constantly, <clears throat> even later on, years later, if he chose to concentrate, he could do really intricate, delicate, powerful work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever equation he made in his mind about uh, how much effort he wanted to put in, I think he yeah. did case by case. But yeah, this is, you know, and he and he was a good penciler too. I think everybody who's in this comic is somebody that if Stan was not close personal friends, it was at least somebody Stan enjoyed working with. Yes, you know, and delegating to. Because don't forget, this is. Uh, it, let me let me go back. Is there a comics code seal on the cover? Is this no? It's before the uh, code. This is pre-code. There's no yeah, comics pre-code. code seal. Stanley. That explains all the blood no, <laughs> and the exit wounds. Stan <laughs> and the and the full frontal nudity and unbelievable. Yes. yes. No. Stan. Ooh. Stan is here, overseeing with other editors, about uh-huh. seventy to eighty comic books a month. Yeah. So it's you know. Uh, and yet he, and yet this is the one you know where he signs every note to the reader from Stanley editor. Then there's this strange mm-hmm. thing called uh, Abdullah Bulbul Amir, which yeah, I know nothing. <laughs> is a very odd Turkey. It's got a lot of ethnic caricatures that probably would not fly uh, no. very well today. <laughs> but il- illustrated by someone called Davy Berg here, who went on to be Dave Berg of, right. of you know the lighter side of a Mad Magazine. Yes. Weren't there two Dave Bergs? There, I thought there was like another Dave Berg comic book artist. There might have been, but I, I'm pretty sure this is the same as the Mad guy. Yeah. No, I agree with you because it looks like something out of Mad, even though it's not drawn in that style that he developed for the lighter side later, which is, yeah, it's, it's more, you know, yeah. I'm, th- this is more illustrative. That was more like pared down, almost like the, the, the lighter side stuff almost felt to me always like, he was hoping to get a comic strip out of it. Right. And it was hyper realist. This is more, this actually feels more like mad, like, like the Will Elder kind of. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A lot of detail. And, uh, right. You no, know, it's even, I mean, in a way it's, it, I almost see 
a little bit of a Kriegsteed influence almost, you know, with some of the wow. with some of the figures kind of go into abstraction. And you know, Kriegsteed did, you know, although he ended up uh, loathing Stan and and uh, <laughs> you know and having nothing good to say about him, the fact is that uh, Kriegsteed did more stories for Stan than he ever did for EC. You know, really, <laughs> yeah, tons and tons of, of work for Stan. You know, um, but, I did not know that. Yeah, um, if you look through a lot of those. True crime, you know the whole output of of Atlas in the fifties, you know, or just or just look mm. up Kriegstein's, you know, look Kriegstein. You'll see tons of stuff for Stan. Wow, that's amazing. Right. Yeah, and then uh, Stan could be controversial. I mean, I was just, I just recorded an episode of this episode of this show the other day where I talked about Arnold Drake, uh -huh. and I don't know if you were there at the Eisner Awards the night he got the Bill Finger Award. Um, I believe I was. Yes, when he sang the song, and. I found a report on that night or that, you know, that moment that reminded me that he mentions in the song, something about Stanley stealing credit from other creators. Yeah. Well, that was always a, 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 a sore spot. And don't forget this guy also, I, I think he was, I, I think Arnold who I knew a little bit and you know, sweet guy and very smart mm -hmm. and funny. And, um, you know, also he'd worked for, um, Bob Kane. So, uh, Oh geez, I met I met Arnold a couple of times. But I didn't know him particularly. It was great. So um, yeah, but uh, look, Stan. Pe a lot of people love Stan, but a lot of people didn't. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I I would say the people who Stan was, many of the people Stan was closest with, either made their piece of it, say like John Buscema or um, right or Gene Cohen, who like they yes, or and there was a there's a whole school of people say from the fifties who who were friendly with and admired Stan but did but but at a certain point went to work for other people or went to work on their own you know so they could they could have a, a friendly personal relationship and not have to be concerned about what he or Goodman or the company what their business practices were you know there was uh right. they they so they somehow were able to divide church and state mm -hmm. you know and and Stan could be you know, you know everybody knows the stories and if you don't but my book a marvelous life mentions a lot of them he could be yes. very generous and good to people too. I mean, he was very yeah. loyal. Well, look, as as I mentioned in that same episode where I talk about Arnold Drake, you know, I only met Stan a few times, but the first time I met him, I was a very unhappy, you know, thirteen year old fan who found, met him at the Mighty Marvel Comic Con uh -huh. by you know just by chance, and he made me feel really good. Right. <laughs> so you know. I, I well, admire uh, him for that. Yeah, no, he he was complicated, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. as I say, I mean, it's funny. I didn't I didn't intend to speak a lot about Stan. By the same token, this is clearly a a project that Stan was somehow deeply in, that his name is all over. And I don't think just incidentally. Yes. I don't, you know, you know, it makes sense. You know, it was the first issue of a kind of experimental thing. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it, it would be the kind of thing that he would not delegate. Although again, right. I think some of these stories he probably just said to the artist, "Take this lyric and you know and make and make have it, fun, with, have it, fun yeah. with it. Maybe show me the sketches." Or, you know. Again, that's I think that's why all the artists were regulars, people he trusted to just say, you know. Then we came to Frankie and Johnny, uh -huh. which is a, which is still a well-known song. Frankie and Johnny were lovers. Yes, and drawn by Al Hartley. Drawn by Al Hartley, long before he started drawing, you know, Christian comics. Yeah, well, Al was a regular, mostly romance artist. Yeah. He did one, yes. You know, from our, from our childhood, he at least from my childhood, Stan must have been in a deadline yeah. bind because he did one issue, one one Thor story that, you know, was weird, uh -huh. just weird. It was so not in keeping with the Marvel look and feel. Oh yeah, I remember it well yeah. because it really stood out. I yeah. Mean, the early, not to get too deep into this, but like the early bunch of Thor stories after, like Kirby drew the first few, Joe Sinat drew a bunch, Don Heck drew a bunch, and then. So they were at least, they looked like Marvel comics right. that, you know, they had that feel that you were used to, but the Al Hartley issue just is out from left field. It totally. Yeah. It was like just uh, odd looking. Yeah. But this is, you know, a very nice looking story. Yeah. yeah um, again, you know, I want to go out on a limb here for a minute and say, I wonder if in a weird way, if he gave these artists the leeway to take the lyrics and interpret them, was that a predecessor in a way that's not quite the right word uh, to the Marvel style of scripting? Well, with Stan's style, you know, 
right. Stan was quote unquote the you know the editor you know of credit for up to up seventy or eighty titles a month. Right. So he liked having people to whom he could, and this is what look. This is where a lot of the controversy controversy about right the Marvel method, quote unquote, and his relation his working relationships with uh, Kirby and Ditko. I think he'd like to have people to whom he could say, you're, you know, you're the editor slash writer slash artist. You're the packet, you know, you're in effect the packager of this comic. Mm, Yeah. I trust you. You know, it's going to be read by eight year olds. There's no continuity. Just bring me something good. And, you know, and, 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 and I think he did that with Al Jaffe, with Jerry Robinson, with other people, you know. So yeah. so in that sense, he liked to have people he could trust. So you're right. I think that that comes from it sort of I, I think what happened, you know, with Marvel, right, in this period, this is the this is nineteen fifty-four. Three years later, Marvel had that implosion where they went from seventy titles a month to yeah. uh, eight titles a month. And and so those systems got adapted. I think Stan wanted to still you know, I'm sure Stan did a lot. You know, he had whatever his salary was, and then he made money doing freelance writing, right? He, yes. If you're writing eight titles a month, but you're putting out 70, you know, well, big deal. It's still 60 other titles that need to be written by other people. If you're only putting out eight titles a month and you still want the writing credit and the writing payment, then how do you work out an arrangement with the artists and Yes, it's very messy and complicated, and and obviously has led to five thousand uh, Facebook pages about uh, Stan, <laughs> about Stanley being the devil. You know, <laughs> but yeah, I think I, I think his 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 method was I trust you, Al Hartley. You know, you've done work for me for years. Yeah. You know, here's the ball, and if it's terrible, who cares? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he said to a Dan DiCarlo, do something crazy and wacky like you right. know like mad magazine or whatever you know just give them a tone right exactly so that you know again this is the first issue so it's quite likely that he took you know that stan uh-huh. probably checked in at certain points to make you know just to make sure that again who the hell knows but maybe he looked at thumbnail sketches yeah you know it it, it does seem that those were the people that he that he liked to work with simply because there were so many titles coming out. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that if, say, Al or Jerry could write, draw, and edit, you know, and bring and, and deliver, you know, yes. a, a full comic every month, then, then more, pa- <clears throat> more power to them. Right. You know, and especially something like this where, you know, the, the plot's, you know, the songs themselves were the plots. So all you had to do was adapt right. them. So the last story is called Cielito Lindo. It's a, and it is, uh, according to comics.org, it's drawn by Harry Anderson, but it's listed here as by special permission of the illustrator. Right. Which, again, we're not quite sure what that means. I don't really know Harry Anderson's work. Like, I've never even heard his name for almost at all. No, and, but, I, and, uh, I, and, I, and I wonder if it's a pseudonym for somebody else, you know. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I, there was another one that also had a credit like that that was credited to somebody. Right. Um, that was the Ken Bald story. I right, right. So I, I don't know who. Oh, there's Al Gordon. Well, obviously, he's not the Al Gordon who's, a, who's an artist no. currently since he would have been about uh, two years old at this point. Yeah, something. right. <laughs> More or less, you know, if he was even born when this came out. Yeah, I mean, if you look uh, now, Salito Lindo was a popular song of the era. That uh... um, I don't know about the era. Like um, my high school girlfriend was of Latin Latina origins, and she sang. She would sing that song just as something she heard growing up. You know, right? So, so I'm not. So again, I'm not sure what this might have been a public domain thing too. Yeah, I'm looking. I decided to look up Harry Anderson's credits, by the way, and he drew for Hillman and oh, Fawcett. Oh, so there and, was such a person. Okay. Yeah. And a lot a lot of Marvel credits. Interesting. Okay. Well, this yeah. I mean, this almost looks like Heath to me, but uh-huh. you know. Um, Some of it looks very illustrative. There's yeah. a, a 
close-up of the woman um, on the second page of the story that's, you know, almost like a Frazetta kind of thing. It's very illustrative. I can't quite describe it. Yeah, but. no, yeah, it's... Um... It, it's a more realistic story, although on the first page is that close-up of her where she looks almost like uh, Veronica from uh, Archie. Comics. Oh, yeah. It's it's an odd, you know, again, like that second panel of the of the uh, cowboy with the green hat. He almost, that, that looks like from the photo almost. That that must have been photo reference. Uh-huh. It looks like some movie star of the 40s. That, yeah, that could be. But, but so here, so now after that, we get to the, the Now You Tell Us page. It's a text page. Well, it's got the answer to the quiz, from uh, which is elsewhere in the book, but it's got, Hi, friends. We sincerely hope you like our first issue of World's Greatest Songs. We try to include everything you want to read in a magazine of this type, but careful though, <laughs> careful though we were, we probably slipped up somewhere. And now that's where uh-huh. you come in. Why don't you write and tell us what you like and don't like about World's Greatest Songs? Of course, we'll print the most interesting letters. Address all your correspondence to Stan Lee, editor World's Greatest Songs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I, that's I, funny, man. The where we slipped up. Well, that's real. That's classic Stan, though. This reads. Yeah. This reads to me like he really wrote it. Like he actually wrote it. Maybe that's where that Cape Town Ladies thing was. You know, like that was. I don't know. That was a song for, that I knew as a kid really well, and nobody would have confused Camp Town and Cape Town. But I wonder if he like put that in there just to give people something to kind of oh. write in about. Uh, you know, I, I think it's probably just a mistake, just uh, oh, okay. a brain fart, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's interesting. You know, and, and, um, right. And then there's a contest. So, yeah, so it looks like this, this seems like a, a book that, that certainly the first issue stand, you know, it must've seemed like kind of easy money for everybody. You know, you have, you know, sure. you pay a few bucks to license a real song. You get a lot of public domain or fair use stuff. You, it's they're two to four pages, mostly two. So when your artists have nothing to do, they they can do something and, yep. and earn some money if, if they're between gigs. And, and you know, and I don't now that the Eddie Fisher thing to, to put him on the cover at the peak of his popularity is really there must have been something going on with Goodman's magazines. Although, like I said, I could not find. Although Eddie Fisher was on a million fan magazines, I could well, not. Sure. I could, but I couldn't find any of them that came out of Goodman's uh, publishing company. Huh. Funny. And uh, so, you know, this is this considering how interesting this is, just as an oddity, and how obsessive the comics uh, fans and historians are. I could not find anything anywhere really much about this except oh, it's this oddball one shot, you know. So everything I'm. Everything I've said is kind of my theory about it and theories about it, where it would fit in. But who the hell knows? And then there's this, can you write the lyrics? Yes. Which has, let's say who, like the, who the artist on this was, is there a credit? Uh, according to comics.org, this page is Dave Berg. Right. That could well be. And it's, it seemed, it's, a, it's a couple, kind of a classic kind of 50s couple doing romantic things. They're, they're on a ride in an amusement park. They're at a pond. They're holding hands in the park. They're at the uh-huh. beach. And <laughs> that's interesting. And then the end is ambiguous because yes. they, they seem to be getting married, but it also seems that at least the marriage part is being dreamed by the woman. Mm-hmm. Or possibly the whole page was, you know. Right. That, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of suggestive of a lyric or a, you know, you, I, I can see a direction you can go with these lyrics. Yeah, no, it's a fun, easily. it's a fun thing. And then they want you to send in your uh, mail them before August first, nineteen fifty four, to Stanley, to Stanley editor. editor, World's Greatest Month. <laughs> That's easily the fourth time his name's been in. This yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Clearly, he was into this. And then you know, so and then of course, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know. You can figure out who the intended audience of a magazine is by looking at the ads. <laughs> yep. Now there are very few ads, I guess, um, but there's an ad. Well, there's an ad for a record, a no no risk coupon to mail away for um, seventy eight RPM records. Right. That seems to feature uh, Dean Martin as Dean Martin, Snooky Lanson, and some people who whose names I don't recognize. Mm. 
But the main ads, the back cover, or I can't tell what the back or the inside back cover is. And that's the, yeah, I, I could not. So I'll explain real, real briefly. But the way we got a copy of this comic was somebody took a shot of every page and posted it as a video on YouTube. Oh, and actually went through and stopped the video and took a screenshot of every page and then wow. put it into InDesign and made a PDF. So we had something we could actually read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our play. But it was impossible to get that last page. It was like a split second. It was just, anyway, so, you know, we so we're missing the last page, oh, the back cover. Oh, we are? Okay. But, so, this, so this is the inside back cover? Yes. So it says, it's a picture of a, you know, of an attractive woman of the era, but a little blurry. Not a great, uh, where was the rest of the page? That's how women were back then, a little blurry. And the, and the headline is, she once had, and then in giant letters, thin legs. <laughs> now I have fuller calves, shapely thighs, hips, and ankles, writes Miss R.U. from Cleveland, Ohio. So that's this R. ad. Huh? R period U. And then the inside front cover had yep. an ad for beautiful swim-proof lips without lipstick. It's called Liquid Lip Tone. So yeah. I'm guess you know, so I'm imagining teenage girls or young women were the intended audience. Whereas for a lot of Goodman's magazines, they were full of ads for either trusses to take care of you know your hernia, or oh, or yeah. uh, or ads for <laughs> for make your own false teeth at home, or or, or measure yourself for me- measure yourself for false teeth and mail in. The measurements to us, and we'll send you false teeth. Really, cra- really crazy stuff. The Goodman magazines were full of these hernia oh ads and make your own false teeth. So now, did you say that the that he also was the publisher of True Detective? I don't know, if, or was that just the type of thing? The type of thing, you know. Oh, okay. I, I okay. don't. I don't. Yeah, the type. After of I thing. after I left Marvel um, in the mid nineteen late nineteen eighties, I went to work for uh, Video Magazine, right, and. It was uh, the publisher was a young guy named Jay Rosenfield, and his father was still there, and he was the publisher of the actual True Detective magazine. Okay. So they were still publishing them, and they were, boy, were they cheesy looking, and you know, right. it, it was like um, Weekly World News, but with murders. Well, well, that was the kind of thing. That's the milieu that that Marvel comes out of. You know, Michael Vassallo, mm-hmm. yes. Doc V has. Has has done tons and tons of research on the comics, and also he's got an incredible collection uh, that he allowed me to go through uh, one day of, of like all the other magazines Goodman put out in the forties and fifties and sixties. Oh, cool! And it was one of the most depressing days of my life. <laughs> Not you know, I mean, Doc Doc was great, and we had an enjoyable I'm lunch. Sure. And I love the guy, and 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 my hats off to him as one of the all time great researchers of of, of this stuff. But just reading this stuff, you know, one after the other is so, dep- you know, I was very glad yeah. to have done it to really get a real sense of the context which spawned Marvel and kind of that and the world that, that because, you know, again, in the from the late 50s to the late 60s, you know, Marvel was this tiny part of magazine management, you know, the company where famously Mario Puzo and Bruce J. Friedman Yep. worked as writers and editors and and you look at that stuff and you and it's just I can't even explain it it's just sad stuff but it, but it but it you know Goodman rarely innovated he usually copied whatever trend was going yes. on and then put out tons of it so yes but so I you know I've, I'd have to like uh, you know do a search to get the exact titles but you know oh, lots sure. of you know lots of Hollywood type stuff and lots of uh you know, very often a lot of the photos, you know, would have like Marvel staffers posing as whatever outlandish thing they were supposed to be, you know, uh, uh-huh. uh, gangsters or hookers or, you know, movie star, you know, whatever. Yes. So, so that's the, that's what birthed uh, Marvel. So this, this, this is somewhere in that context of, 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 and, and you're right. Stan's name is in so many places. It wouldn't surprise me if this was one of Stan's many attempts yeah. To either, if not get out of comics, then to expand his reach and expand, and 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 probably right somewhere in the in the mess of of imitations of Mad that they were doing, some of which were pretty mm-hmm. damn funny. 
Hmm. You know, this 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 falls in there. But it, I I am amazed how little is known about this and how except that it existed. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, like look, the first thing I did when you said you want to talk about this comic was, you know, start looking at the places I often buy issues from and nobody had it <laughs> right i couldn't find it and then also there's a couple of websites that post pdfs of public domain comics and this is old enough to be in the public domain i don't you know not with um, the song lyrics song lyrics are really but that i was yeah, just gonna yeah, say yeah. the song lyrics might make make it more tricky but you know they didn't have it yeah. either no so. i don't think it's public no i think i think marvel has been pretty scrupulous about retaining the copies so i don't i don't know if it's it's such a weird copyright thing because of all these songs. Yeah. Look, you know, again, another possible scenario is either sales, either advanced sales were so bad they just canceled it, or uh-huh. maybe they did get cease and desist letters from Eddie Fisher's. I mean, because yeah, you're looking, too. I mean, look, putting out a comic with Eddie Fisher on the cover in early 1954 would be like putting out a comic with the Beatles on the cover, you know. Putting out a Be- like putting out a Beatles magazine in nineteen sixty-three without yeah, getting you yeah. know. So I mean, you know, maybe they thought they could get it. Maybe they thought and it wouldn't surprise me, somewhere in there, maybe they thought, oh, Eddie Fisher's a public figure like the president or or you know. Right, but, but they're selling this comic based on his image and his name. Right. So somewhere some deal may, might have gone south or maybe yeah. there was a cease and desist letter. You know, in a way, it reminds me of Amazing Fantasy 15. You know, I mean, the, huh. you know, the myth about Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man, you know, the story that Stan and the, uh, told was that we knew it was going to be canceled, so we put Spider-Man in because we figured, what do we have to lose? Just to say. But if right. you read Amazing Fantasy 15, it's clear that they were intending that they keep saying, come back next issue and let us know what you think of Spider-Man yeah. and be on, and yeah. on you know, so that, and, that yeah. And um, I think you've, I'm sure you've seen this, but a lot of people have theorized that the first couple of issues of Spider-Man were meant to be, you know, different chapters right. of amazing fantasy right. that they just put into one book. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I think Goodman, you know, look, the the thing that you can almost see, in the difference between even today between Marvel and DC in terms of their movies, you know, is that despite being owned by Disney, Marvel still seems to be able to make spontaneous decisions. I mean, that was that was that was yeah. an advantage they had, and I think would enable them to to overtake DC in the '60s and '70s. Was you know certainly in the '60s, if Stan had an idea, the only person who had to prove it was Martin Goodman, and if Martin Goodman yes. had an idea. He could walk down the hall and have Stan enact it the next day. Whereas DC right. was always, well, you know, you've worked at both. You know, DC was always highly bureaucratized and, and segmented. Yep. So And, uh, yeah, segmented to the point where, like, you know, editors wouldn't consult with each other, wouldn't poach on right. each other's talent, wouldn't, you know, step on each other's toes. And, you know, they had Mort Weisinger, who was sort of the head editor in a way, who basically, if he didn't like what another editor was doing, he'd go complain to Jack Leibowitz, right. and then Jack Leibowitz would shut it down. <laughs> yes, that was, so you could one could imagine that maybe Goodman and Stan thought they could get away with this. Or, yeah, so, some something happened, or either something was assumed, or a relationship went sour, or a contract was never signed. Because mm-hmm. if you read, if you read the, the text pages here they're clearly planning for a next issue yes but like i said you know i mean Eddie, i wonder also and uh, you know we we should wrap up soon, i think but I wonder oh, yeah, also, this, <laughs> this went a little long <laughs> went a little long, we, longer than 25 minutes <laughs> it's true but hey a lot of good stuff to talk about yeah. i wonder also if the sales were really bad because it's a comic book format and people who like this kind of material were looking for something that was a magazine format over here in the newsstand rather than over here with the comic books. You know, that is, that is quite possible. It it, it might've just confused uh, retailers even. Where do we put this? Yeah. What is it? Where do you put it? Right. That's yeah. not a new problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Market confusion. You know, I would, to research this, it, it's doable, but it would take, a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, is, is anybody yeah. associated with this comic even still alive? Oh, that's a great question. 
Um, I don't think so. Uh, Let me see. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, no. I'm, I mean, I'm friendly with the Ken Balls uh, family, but I doubt they would know much about this. No, of course, it's two pages out of a long yeah, career. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. No, nobody, nobody's still with us from this list of of creators. Yeah, I mean, amazing. So you'd have to. Yeah. I mean, this would require you know going to the Library <laughs> of Congress and. Although it'd be pretty funny, you know, one of those things where, you know, might be, you know, might be worth, yeah. maybe I'll just, I wonder just sending a letter to like the Eddie Fisher estate going, you know anything about this, right? <laughs> you know, you'll either get, uh, I have no idea what you're talking about, or I've been waiting 60 years for somebody to ask me about this. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think more likely the, la- the More likely former. the former, but, you know, there's another project I'm working on that, you know, where it's just people's people take a, 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 a an interest in things that that you wouldn't expect because it involves their their parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, um, yes. But but having said that, in in a scandal filled life such as Eddie Fisher's, I don't. I have a feel. <laughs> I have a feeling. Whatever the real story of World's Greatest Songs is, probably. It's a minor, <laughs> a minor a blip. blip, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, before we wrap up real quickly, I'm going to just mention while we were talking, I went back and looked on Wikipedia and Oh My Papa was written as Oh Mine Papa in 1939 for a musical called Der Schwarze Hecht in Germany. So I'm sure that was so the, delightful. So the Black Hecht, the Black Heart, maybe? The Black Pike. The Black Pike. Really? Yeah. That's kind. Of, yeah. And who? It's crazy. Wow. And then, huh? Incredible. That was. I mean, look, he had a lot of hits, uh, Eddie Fisher, but that was that. That's probably the one that's lasted the people would. But that's interesting. Well, it has a very kind of a sweet melody, and it's very sentimental. You know? I mean, he was. Yes. You know, like I said, I think he was one of those. Because it, it turned out he wasn't a very good actor. He was in a couple of movies and. Uh, and that was not uh, that didn't work. Yeah, he had some different. He had comebacks during his career, but this, when this came out, he was, you know, this was during Sinatra's decline, and this guy right. was the like the new Sinatra. You know. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Dan. Yeah. and I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. I love the idea of this of this podcast, and and uh, and, yeah. and that you were into exploring this particular uh, comic. So so thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.